So hello everybody, welcome back. Uh, this is a particular treat and pleasure for me today as a scholar of digital economy. We're very lucky to have Professor Yu Hong visiting us from Zhejiang University in China. She is a professor of media and international culture um, at Zhejiang University, but she did her PhD at, in the communications from the University of Illinois. She's an expert on China's global digital footprint, and she's undertaken research on China's foreign aid in ICT, particularly in Africa, examining the motivations of foreign direct investment and networking, and studying what the impact is for regional economic development and South-South relations. She's recently co-edited a book, China's Globalizing Internet, History, Power, and Governance, and she's currently working on a new book manuscript in Chinese called States and the Cybersphere, History, Governance, and Development. She's joining us here at the LSE as a Mailing Bernie scholar. Some of you might not know who Mailing was. She was a very dear colleague of ours in the International Development Department who was working on the comparative politics of China and particularly looking at the dynamic relationship between the, the central state in China and local politicians and policymakers. And when I was reading the paper for tonight, I saw a lot of synergies with her work, so it's nice to kind of remember Mei Ling uh, today. Uh, so tonight, Yu Hong is gonna be talking about the kind of dynamic and hybrid nature of China's media landscape showing how it's marked both by kind of state developmental strategies and political objectives to extend infrastructural power, but also by kind of private competition and entrepreneurship. She's gonna demonstrate the kind of multiple functions of the digital infrastructure. Not only it's kind of economic infrastructure, but also it is a political infrastructure as well as a kind of cultural infrastructure and showing the ways in which private firms and governments blend these kinds of functions. I think her research really underscores the sense that we have to do quite careful, empirically grounded work on digital technologies. In place of this kind of very technologically deterministic view, which kind of sees the outcomes of digitization coming from the technologies themselves, she shows how much digitization kind of plays out differently in different contexts, depending on political power, but also market power as well. In this way, we can have no better discussant than Professor David Soskis. He's probably best known for his uh, co-edited book, Varieties of Capitalism, which I know some of you read last term, and has been a source of inspiration for many scholars. He's an emeritus professor in the government department as well as the former director of the International Inequalities Institute at the LSE. He's published too many books and, and papers to, to name all of them, but his two recent books are one with Tova Iverson, Democracy and Prosperity, Reinventing Capitalism Through a Turbulent Century, as well as a book that I think is coming out this year with Wendy Carlin, called Macroeconomics, Institutions, Instability, and Inequality. So without further ado, I'd like us to welcome uh, Professor Yu Hong to the podium as well as to the LSE and to our department. Thank you. Um, so first of all, I would, I would like to thank uh, James, Laura, and Tian for bringing me here. Uh, it's really a great pl a pleasure and also an uh, honor um, to, to be a visiting scholar at a LSE. 
and uh, it's also such a um, pressure thing to spend three weeks like on this very beautiful campus and to do uh, uh, some deep thinking and uh, uh, intellectual interaction. So, um, uh, so what I'm going to talk about uh, is something that uh, um, that I draw from my working manuscript, um, and I want to thank James for suggesting this very vivid uh, title, uh, bringing cyberspace down to earth. So what I'm going to do uh, in this talk, I think we'll have four parts. First of all, I'm going to explain, is this microphone work? I think so. Okay, uh, so first of all, I'm going to explain the key concept. Um, uh, I want to explain what I do, what do I mean by cyberspace, um, and uh, why I come up with uh, alternative term, uh, cybersphere. And then I want to explain my theoretical positioning. Um, and uh, in the third part of my talk, I will uh, kind of cut to the chase. I will uh, summarize my research outcome. Uh, and then ultimately, hopefully, I can bring out some uh, larger conceptual implications of this research. So let me first start with this old but still relevant story. Um, uh, as, as you probably know, over the past 40 plus years, China uh, reintegrated with the US-led neoliberal glo global order. Uh, China participated in the global division of labor, and uh, therefore China has become uh, part of this uh, global economy. And um, so um, by doing so, by uh, carrying out market reform and uh, opening up, uh, China has achieved considerable success. Uh, both in terms of domestic reforms, uh, in terms of uh, pushing forward new institutional reforms, and also externally, China has become an important member of the global community, right? Uh, and maintaining a high level of interdependence with um, other parts of the world. So, as of now, I think China's position is a position of paradox. Uh, on the one hand, China is entangled with this US-led global economic system. But on the other hand, I think China is moving away and moving against uh, the, these uh, status quo. So I think uh, as, as we all uh, understand, this is a time of great uncertainty, a great turbulence. Um, and uh, during a time like this, it's very important to recognize the agency of states and, and the societies. So, so this is kind of uh, an old and relevant story uh, that set up the, the backdrop of my ongoing research. So now let me explain why I'm so interested in the internet, why I'm so interested in the cyber, cyberspace and the uh, cybersphere, as I, I call it. Um, so the reason I'm interested in the internet is because increasingly we notice that China's interaction with the world uh, uh, or China's modernization is carried out uh, through the internet, okay? Uh, China interacts with the world through the, through the internet. I think most of the audiences will agree with me on that. And also China's modernization has a very strong dose of digitization, okay? So because of that, the internet actually has a become a very important uh, variable in understanding uh, China, chi the Chinese version of modernity. So, uh, but, so therefore we need to clarify what do we mean by the internet, okay? Uh, we, we understand that the internet is global in scope, okay? Uh, but it's very important to um, emphasize that the internet is not a virtual space, 
the internet is not a virtual space out of, outside of physical space. It's not a virtual space out of the reach of social, social forces. Okay, so, um, so I think it's very important to see internet as embedded in social relations and social forces. And uh, be, uh, because of that, the internet from the beginning of its uh, uh, establishment is defined by different competing practices and norms. Okay, so therefore, uh, in order to kind of counter the often see a digital sublime, a digital utopianism, we, my co-author and I, come up with a new term called cybersphere because we feel that oftentimes cyberspace is associated with a, a kind of digital sublime. Uh, but at the same time, we want to highlight three features of the internet. The first one is materiality, meaning meaning that no matter how uh, uh, vir virtual uh, we experience the the cyberspace, um, actually the internet always have material groundings. Uh, if you think about the power power bases, if you think about all the material devices, you think about the 5G. Uh, the internet actually is never outside of physical space. Okay, so the materiality is a key feature of the. Uh, internet. And the second feature, I think, is relationality, uh, meaning that the internet, as I mentioned, is defined by social relations. Um, uh, in my view, the internet expands because uh, people, uh, people take out communicate, communicative actions with each other. And as the commu communicative relations accumulate, internet will expand. Okay, still people uh, communicate and interact uh, from certain social positions and for certain so social purposes. So therefore, power always matters. Uh, power often um, uh, influences social relations, and the power always have the advantage in, in producing uh, connections, in organizing relations, in expressing certain ideas. So therefore, cyberspace, uh, cybersphere, or the internet, it is defined by relational uh, dimensions. Okay, so so in my view, uh, what what I understood as the internet is not only a material thing, but also a communication uh, kind of outcome. Okay, and the third feature of the internet, as we uh, conceptualize it, is uh, is in terms of disagreement. Okay, so the internet is not a given thing. Okay, it's nothing given. Actually, it is from the outset of uh, internet development. Uh, the internet as an infrastructure, as an artifact, is always defined by disagreement. People disagree on how inter internet should be developed, for what purpose, uh, by whom, for, for whose interest, and how we should govern the internet. So the internet is always defined by disagreement. Um, so by these three uh, dimensions, I think we get, get to um, uh, the, the, the get, getting uh, to a much more fundamental uh, level of how to understand uh, cyber politics. Okay, so um, because we have this conceptualization, so we become unhappy with the, the photo I'm showing you. Okay, because this photo looks very futuristic. It looks really uh, immaterial. Okay, so I find another photo, I think better represent my view about what cyberspace or cybersphere is. So as you can see, um, the, the cybersphere actually today really uh, has come to encompass all aspects of social life. 
uh, from economic transaction to information exchange uh, to uh, diplomatic relations. And uh, I, I would even go further to claim that the cybersphere has become the social life itself, uh, where a wide range of uh, social technical systems interconnect peoples, interconnect things, and a channel flows. Okay, so I would even think that today we can call uh, the social life as a me media mediated social life, and uh, the material foundation is the internet. So, um, so I think um, now we kind of I have explained my key concept. And uh, one more point I want to make is about the spatiality of the so-called cybersphere. Uh, when we think about cybersphere, we often use the term such as interconnect interconnectivities uh, because we use the internet to connect with each other. But how about vertical relations? How about hi hierarchical relations? That does hierarchical relation continue to exist um, within the in within cyberspace? I think. Um, it's important to recognize that vertical relations continue to characterize the spatiality of the cybersphere. Um, so I, I use this photo to, as a metaphorical imagery to, to illustrate what the cybersphere really looks like. Um, I think this is a photo of, uh, of islands, right? They are archipelagos. So, um, so they are little islands rise above the sea. So you can, you can compare these islands to digital platforms, okay? So in, the, in our cyberspace, we actually, we access the cyberspace through all kinds of platforms. And these platforms are just like the island that rise above the sea. But what is less visible is the roots of these platforms, meaning that for these platform economy to really op operate, operate uh, the, the platform needs to thrust its roots into local communities and local populations in order to extract value, okay? Because we know the platform doesn't produce anything. Think about fa Facebook, think about Twitter. They don't produce anything. What they do is that they will uh, connect populations, connect things, and uh, they will extract values from local community, local population, so that the information, sentiment, and commodities can start it to uh, flow, flow in variety of directions, okay? So, so I think it's very important to, to understand that the cybersphere, on the one hand, interconnect people, and um, there are hubs, and there are some nodes are more important. Uh, there are hubs, and uh, uh, the, within the hubs, there are different ties, right? So there is a skilled, skilledness in terms of the distribution of degrees, according to the network theory. Uh, but still, the network, the web, uh, term is quite horizontal um, imagery. It's very important on top of that to understand that uh, apart from interconnectivities, we also need to understand that the cybersphere actually has become um, vertical. It has become um, uh, hierarchical uh, in the sense that digital assemblages cannot exist without, without um, exporting kind of uh, uh, local communities and local resources. So, um, so with uh, this definition and uh, with the explanation of the spatiality, I think now I can, uh, I, I kind of 
provide, try to provide a metaphorical play within, on which we can see China's position. Um, so I, I study China from three perspectives. One is China in the world. Uh, so basically, I think today's world, today's global order is a global order defined by interconnectivities and communications. So China has merged itself into the, into the flows, so to speak. But it's a hierarchical flow. It's not a horizontal flow. It's a hierarchical flow. And uh, so yeah, China has become part of these global flows. And, uh, and, and the global flows is not, um, it, it has directions, it has certain structures, okay? So that's China in the world, how we see China, how we understand China. It's not an isolated country, it is, there, uh, what is happening inside of China oftentimes needs to define through uh, these transnational perspectives, okay? Um, so, in other words, China is, China's position um, is located within these webs of relations. And the second dimension of my research really talk about China and the world. Uh, basically, talking about China, how China negotiating its position in the world, okay? And uh, the key, key actor here actually are transnational corporations and transnational platforms because these kind of institutions today actually organize resources and uh, organize how resources are distributed and how they flow, uh, in what direction, okay? So China, on the one hand, accommodate transnational corporations and transnational platforms, and on the other hand, China, Chinese state in particular, is trying to build its own steering mechanisms. And the last aspects of my interest is about China's world. In other words, China is globalizing itself. So China is um, exporting uh, artifacts, exporting institutions and visions. So in order to understand the ramifications of this globalizing China, I think it's very important to keep up with uh, 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 what is going on in the digital domain. Okay, so, um, so that's kind of my uh, key concepts. Um, and I, um, now I can get to my second part, which is about the theoretical positioning. Um, and um, when we study, uh, for, for those who know my work, I have a continuing interest in China's developmental stance towards and within the internet. And on this concept, I think um, there are some very obvious conventional wisdoms. And uh, some, some people uh, see China as a contender for hegemonic power, okay? So basically as another, another contender for hegemonic power by exercising uh, techno-economic nationalism, okay? So there is a realist narrative circulating uh, to, uh, and uh, this realist narrative basically frame China as another con contender for power. I think it's, uh, uh, this kind of storyline can often be uh, find in uh, news, cover news cover pages, uh, in uh, com commentaries. Uh, another, so that's one type of narrative. Another type of narrative is to see China uh, as an authoritarian regime disrupting the free flow of information in the, um, the so-called borderless internet. And uh, so, um, 
so I think there are, there are two versions of dominant fra frameworks to talk about China. And uh, there is a third one, uh, which is on the intellectual left. I think increasingly uh, on the intellect, intellect, inte intellectual left, people started to see China as a capitalist nation. Okay, to, um, I think there is a, a, in, a growing concern that China really has become a capitalist uh, society uh, in the post-Mao era. So altogether, I think uh, combining what is going on on the intellectual right and what is going on on the intellectual left, I think um, overall the image, uh, the imagination of China is not quite positive. Uh, China is po poised as either dominant, uh, is, uh, is uh, depicted as either wants to dominate or fracture the global order. So for me, my position is that uh, these perspectives are all va valuable. They all have values, uh, but they are alternative explanations for me uh, to explain what's going on right now uh, because they are insufficient uh, for explaining what I observe uh, right now uh, uh, as, uh, as China keeps transforming itself. So, so let me share with you some of my uh, observations uh, in recent years. So first of all, I think uh, from a communication perspective, uh, China is not a giant cage. Uh, uh, instead of being an authoritarian cage, as these economist page uh, show, China actually has a pretty hybrid system of communication. Okay, um, and uh, it follows neither the logic of statism nor liberalism. Different political economies coexist, collaborate, and, and collide with each other. And the state control the so-called commanding high sectors. And in this diagram, it refers to, for example, telecom operators. Uh, telecom operators is a sector where the state continues to dominate uh, through the majority shareholders, okay? And, uh, and also, if you think about media production, and especially journalist production, it's very much state-dominated, okay? Uh, but at the same time, the state has very much uh, liberalized and decentralized other in less, in less important sectors, including hardware manufacturing and uh, um, uh, to, to, to a different degree, the cyberspace. Okay, so, from, so if we use communication industry as an example, uh, on this diagram, you will see that even uh, the communication sector is not a monolithic whole, actually it is a hybrid economy. Uh, there are multiple political economies coexist and they create all kinds of frictions and but some but most of the time they coexist. Okay. So so I would argue that Chinese market economy um, has been able to kind of develop by following multiple trajectories. And um, so um, so from the state perspective we can say that because the state oversee a hybrid economy, so therefore the state has a, an unusual capacity for self-maneuvering, okay? Especially when, uh, when uh, the, the, the global market is not doing well, okay? So that's one um, dimension of kind of reality that I want to uh, stress. 
the other dimension of the reality is the importance, the continuing importance of the party state. I think on the one hand, we study uh, the economy, but at the same time, the party state continue to matter, uh, be, not only because of its state capacity, not only because of its uh, political economy power, but also because of its political commitment. So I think it's still very important to understand the political philosophy and the political commitment of these party states. And uh, um, in recent years, what we see is that because uh, the post-Mao transformation has so much contradictory uh, problems, so therefore struggles continues within the party state and beyond. So um, during after the 2008 global economic crisis, I think uh, non-Western experiences and memories and uh, theories has been evoked in China, inside of China, within the leadership uh, to, to envision an uh, alternative future, okay? So what, it, what is interesting to, to, to me and to some of my colleagues is that the, the 20th century revolution didn't go away. It submerged, but then re-emerged, re okay? So recently, I, I see these, um, uh, the director who is in charge of African issues uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who made a statement saying that China is a developing country, and developing country is a identity not measured uh, in economic terms, but it's a political identity. So I think it's a very interesting to see that Chinese party state is renewing political commitment, uh, kind of uh, inherited from the 20th century revolution. So, so from there, we see a policy paradigm shift uh, and a rhetorical change, uh, transformations. Uh, in particular, uh, since the 18th uh, century Central Committee, uh, 18th Party Congress, um, the most notable rhetorical shift is these more confident uh, proclama <coughs> proclamation to build a socialist modern nation in all, all around the way. And, uh, and the state also wants to build a so-called high-quality development. So by high-quality development, it definitely is not GDP-driven uh, development. It's a development uh, more kind of people-centric. So, so, so on the empirical side, we do see the rhetorical shift and, uh, and the policy transformations as well. So, but at the same time, of course, um, uh, in practice, I think uh, the socialist claim to the, to the future sometimes yields to the hegemony of present conditions, uh, especially in recent years. Uh, the economic down, uh, down uh, slowdown and uh, uh, the local, uh, local banks' insolvency and uh, uh, people uh, are not fully employed, all these problems put constraint on what the government can actually do. So on the one hand, we do see that socialism as a rhetoric comes back. On the other hand, in terms of the practice, uh, I'm not very sure how, how, how far it has deviated from the old past, okay? So that's the second dimension of uh, what's going on. Um, the third dimension, I think, has to do with the external environment. Um, and uh, we know that in recent years, the US-China has engaged in uh, technological um, uh, Kind of delinking, okay. And uh, what is interesting is that this delinking is engineered by the U.S. side, and uh, so um, so as a result, I think the Chinese leadership has been educated about the perils 
follies and the limits of capitalist integration. So I remember that before 2008, there was a talk about a dual ruling of the, of the globe uh, between US and China. Uh, but I think that idea has, appears to be really um, unrealistic. And uh, um, so, so, so this deglobalization process actually uh, is pushing Chinese leadership to recognize uh, the limitations of a capitalist integration. So what, so what has happened is that if we look at, um, and some uh, political, political scientists actually has made predictions that delinking will actually encourage uh, the smaller players, in this case China, to, to seek further, further self-sufficiency and to cut off interdependence with the dominant one. Uh, meaning the United States. I think such a prediction probably is correct if you, if you uh, look at the chip-making uh, industry. Uh, China is pursuing self-sufficiency in terms of chip design, chip, chip production. Uh, but such a prediction is also partial because China still embraces globalization. Uh, but, but the question becomes what kind of globalization? Uh, one can even claim that maybe um, it's time to think about uh, globalization refashion. Okay, so um, so this is a, a list of foreign foreign policies, foreign foreign initiatives that China started on the digital domain. Uh, it's not very clear, but um, it's a uh, it's all the, uh, uh, the 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 foreign policies uh, uh, related with the internet. And if you look at this list, you will see uh, implicit counter-hegemonic agenda, okay? So I think, so for China, I think it, on the one hand, it is embracing globalization, but on the other hand, a, a right question to ask is to what extent China can refashion globalization? So here is my puzzle. Um, apparently, views about the nature of Chinese society has been highly polarized, okay? And there is a clear dichotomy between Chinese official discourse and outside discourses. And the question becomes why? And uh, so, and, and how to explain the implicit contrast between the conventional wisdoms that I outlined and what we experience inside of China, okay? And why? So this prompts me to reposition myself self theoretically, uh, especially with regard to the state. Um, I use state theories, uh, a variety of state theories. So what I, in my previous work, I have talked about the capitalist logic of the state. I have attended the transnational orientations of the state, meaning that the state uh, internationalized itself, internationalized its capacity in order to serve business, transnational business needs. And also I studied uh, state business relations how state business relations sometimes fused, sometimes uh, uh, at odds with each other. And now I think I need to add one more element, which is to appreciate uh, socialist state formation beyond uh, what we often say, uh, what we often uh, kind of label Chinese state as a pragmatic developmental state. So I think it's time to appreciate, put these um, dimension into the, into the into the uh, configuration in order to understand some of the Chinese state's behaviors. Otherwise, it's impossible to explain. 
So, um, so here are a, a list of theoretical frameworks that we can draw from. So for example, if you look at uh, digital capitalism in China, uh, basically these literature see China as part and parcel of global trends. So digital capitalism is a global and a universal trend, and China is part of it. Okay. So again, China is just part and parcel of it. Uh, China probably follows certain trajectories, but ultimately China is becoming a, 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 a one variety of digital capitalism. Okay. And the, the, new, uh, the second one is new Grandian approach, which really uh, focuses on how the state internationalizes itself in response to the changing requirements of capitalism. And the geopolitical economy approach uh, focuses, uh, put attention to, put attention on contestation and contention. So they study kind of geopolitical struggles, rivalries. So, uh, so, so what I'm showing you is that there are a variety of theoretical frameworks available to, to study the, uh, the nature of the state uh, in a complex uh, situation of political economy. But I want to add one more. Uh, I think there is a small group of literature which really talk about Chinese state as an actually existing socialist state. But it's not glorifying these socialist states. Uh, it put a lot of focus on the ongoing struggles, uh, internal struggles uh, within the party state and beyond. Okay. So that's kind of my new thinking. Uh, I'm kind of add one more layer to my pre-existing theoretical framework. So now um, I can get to the empirical part. Um, so I think based on uh, what I understand about the cyberspace, the cybersphere, and based on what I understand about the Chinese state, we can ask some new questions. Uh, one question is that given the cybersphere is not given, uh, given that the cybersphere is not God-made, right? It's constituted by human actions, then we need to ask, what does it mean when we have a state-led digitization? What, how does the Chinese state try to um, kind of build up its own version of cybersphere? Okay, so I think that's an uh, important question. Uh, the second one is that uh, given that the Chinese state claims to build a socialist modern nation, uh, to what extent China mitigates the internalized telos of capitalist modernity and advancing socialism at home? Okay, so I, I got these questions as my guiding questions. So, um, so the, the general summary of the research is that uh, in China right now, there are, every day, there are many future-oriented projects going on. They are oftentimes digital projects, okay? And, um, and these digital projects are a very good location to observe the, 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 interac the interaction between the state and the political economy. Okay, so what I find is that uh, the, the party states and its guiding ideology um, is, is entangled and uh, by extension contaminated by digital capitalism. So as a result, if we look close up at, at these uh, digital projects, we will find that these digital projects basically unfold as interactive spaces between capitalist and non-capitalist forms. So, so I think it's too early to, to say Chinese digital future is a capitalist future uh, because all these projects seems to kind of um, 
uh, kind of um, uh, stand between uh, this line between capitalist and non-capitalist. So, um, so let me give you two case studies. The first one is Digital Village. Um, as we know, um, uh, live streaming is really big in China, okay? And, um, uh, and the light, short video platforms nowadays has become the ground zero for public attention. So anyone from China will tell you how many hours they spend on kind of revealing the short videos uh, from the short video platforms. So short video platforms actually has become a very important infrastructure, not only for urban population, but also for rural society. And um, so here um, it becomes an interesting um, dilemma. Uh, so for the local, for, for any locality, um, in order to gain any visibility, you have to put yourself on such platforms, otherwise, your local identity will be easily kind of swallowed up by torrents of information flows. Okay, so from the locals' perspective, they want to ramp up localized culture and commodity production for chance local marketing and distribution. So if you go to any county government, what they are doing is to, for example, encourage county level media stations to produce short videos uh, to put on uh, kind of uh, some uh, social media platforms in order to gain local, uh, uh, local popularity, okay? So, so it becomes uh, a developmental effort. If you want to develop as a, as a, a place, you have to gain translocal visibility. So, so from the local's perspective, the idea is to drum up this capacity for producing content, to producing commodities that can be sold on uh, online, okay? And from the platform's perspective, from those social platforms' perspective, they actually also need uh, local support because as I mentioned, they are just the platforms. They are intermediary. They don't produce anything. So they need to constantly extend their lines of commodification. Uh, they need to commodify not only in labor, but also information, but also sentiment, as well as uh, services and and the products. Okay, so therefore, plan platforms, social media platforms, oftentimes wants to uh, tap into local support, and they wants to build localized supply chains. Okay, so so these um, mutual needs are synthesized and uh, creates a scenario where uh, local governments become a very important partner for social media platforms. So, um, so what I find in my field work is that um, some, um, in many small towns, uh, uh, kind of uh, local government help the social media platforms to localize themselves. And so some, uh, some gateways, some, some uh, institutions are being created, okay? So one institution is uh, a live streaming school and on the, Left-hand side, this live streaming school uh, is based uh, in a, how do you say, uh, in a, a remote uh, area in Zhejiang province. And it is not a coastal part of Zhejiang, it's an interior part of Zhejiang. In this region, there is not much industrial assets, there is not, there is not much international trade, 
So the development is relatively, relatively backward. Okay. And what happened is that during the pandemic, the peasants in that region uh, face really bleak business situation. They cannot sell their foods. So the government, local government step, stepped up and, uh, and uh, collaborated with Alibaba to set up this live streaming school to train peasants to, uh, to, to talk in front of the camera. Okay, so the idea is to turn peasants into communicative labor, okay, to sell the produce. So that's, uh, uh, so, and, and a material building is being set up. So it's not just about communicating, communication, it's not just about interaction, but also some material establishment was being set up. So this building is a testimony to this state effort. And, uh, and what is interesting, what I find interesting is that uh, this building actually extends the, the state's functionalities. It, it extends the state space, okay? The state not only set up this school, but also set up a trade union for, for these live streamers. So the state is, is expanding itself by helping the platforms, okay? And, uh, um, and then later on, um, the, 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 the government not only set up this school for training, but also set up an industry. It localized a pet, pet caring industry. So it, it, uh, it enabled some factories to, to manufacture locally and therefore its live streamers can, can sell it, can market it uh, across the web, okay? So, so this is one example uh, where um, the state kind of worked with the platform to, set up, to extend the platform by setting up uh, a training program, by setting up a school, actually. And uh, the second um, example is a digital park also located in a remote area, in a mountainous area. And uh, this area, again, economically is not very uh, advanced. Actually, it's uh, quite isolated, mountainous areas. So what the local government is, was doing is to set up uh, these uh, economic park, economic zone, to host um, internet celebrities for doing e-commerce. Okay, and uh, the idea is that uh, if, if the park can group um, a, a good number of internet celebrities, the, the local people can better sell local specialty goods. Okay, so, um, so this uh, industrial park itself is interesting because it is, the land was owned by the local, gov uh, by the local government, but the operation, the, man the daily management, um, is, is run by a private entrepreneur. So the private entrepreneur actually have dual identity. On the one hand, it is a, he is a private entrepreneur, but on the other hand, he, he is also affiliated with a party. So he helps the party state to extend uh, its functionalities into, uh, into econo economic management. So, so, these, um, so again, this uh, industrial park is about spatialized, re-spatialized li live broadcasting activities. So the, okay, so the idea is to upgrade uh, uh, the, 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 the marketing influence and also to upgrade the supply chain. So the third case actually is uh, another one about um, uh, 
is an e-commerce enterprise. So the e-commerce enterprise um, is really fascinating because uh, it's an uh, e-commerce company that tries to help uh, peasants to sell their goods. And the peasants, oftentimes, they don't know um, how to upload image. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and they don't have a commercial standards to judge whether these produce is good enough for uh, supermarket sales. Okay, so this um, e-commerce company uh, basically did a lot of cultural work and legwork uh, to educate uh, local villagers how to do e-commerce online. Okay, so I think I'm a little uh, behind my, um, my, my, my schedule. I think we have, uh, so okay, so that's um, some uh, cases about the digital village. And then another one I will be uh, uh, brief about this is the city brain. Uh, in, I'm from Hangzhou and uh, anyone who visited Hangzhou know that it's a, a city that hosts Alibaba. It's a, a headquarter city for Alibaba. Okay, so Hangzhou is also well known for its digital governance program. And the most well-known artifacts for digital uh, city, smart city, is this is this technical architecture called a city brain. Um, so if you look at the right-hand side, is a technical map of this city brain. It looks really abstract. Okay, so the basic idea is that the the computer will take data from different department of the government and also take real time data uh, gathered from, for example, traffic lights or from uh, sensors uh, that scattered around the city in order for the government to make better decisions. So this city brain has been applied in a variety of uh, areas, including traffic management, including um, health healthcare, uh, and also tourist management, etc. So, so where does the city brain actually is located? Actually, it is located in this park. Um, so, so again, it's a collaboration between uh, the government and the business. Okay, the government provides the land, and uh, uh, and uh, it started, it created a business ecosystem. So, Alibaba is the dragon head company, uh, and uh, uh, Alibaba provides the computational capacity, and then uh, a whole range of small local companies come to support uh, becoming part of this ecosystem. So what is interesting is that by offering the land, uh, the Hangzhou municipal government is able to creating a new ecosystem, business, business, business ecosystem uh, from scratch. And, uh, and the most of the uh, procurement, uh, the, most of the uh, business uh, orders go to these local companies. So the, the government basically uh, create a supply chain uh, from the local companies. And uh, um, so this diagram basically show how the city brain operate uh, as a social um, system rather than as a technical system. So the city brain is a, is a basically is an architecture, okay? So on the left hand side, the local government offer data. On the, on the right, right hand side, the tech companies offer computational capacities. And also, Alibaba is responsible for creating a business ecosystem. And uh, what is interesting is that uh, the city brain is actually not managed by Alibaba. The state uh, kept Alibaba away from managing the city brain. The, the state created a joint venture, uh, a, a state-controlled joint venture to, 
to operate the CD brain. Basically, to protect the data, to, to protect the interest uh, uh, of the government uh, in the name of the interest of the public. And the third component, I think, is really worth mentioning is the participation of traditional media. Why? Because the city brain is about uh, governing the society from remote, from, from remote, from distance, right? So uh, I, can, I can know where the pandemic uh, is happening by collecting data on everyone's health, health conditions. That's how the city brain functions. But this kind of centralized control oftentimes will have a lot of bugs. So it creates a chaotic situation where there are so much complaints during the pandemic. So people make phone calls, and they often make phone calls to, to traditional localized newspaper. So as a result, um, this whole system becomes uh, more um, uh, kind of inclusive uh, in the sense that traditional media become part of these uh, social technical system rather than being excluded from it. Okay, so so th with these two um, case studies, now let me draw some conceptual uh, conclusion. Um, so I think, first of all, um, it's important to transcend the networked and the hierarchical binaries when we think about the developmental politics of the internet. Okay. Um, Oftentimes we think about internet because it's, it's connecting people. So uh, the, if there's any politics with the internet, it is a matter of exclusion, disconnecting. But I think uh, there is also a hierarchical dimension of the internet politics, okay? And then again, the cybersphere as we conceptualize it is a combination of materiality and communication. As cybersphere expands, uh, it is enriched by capital intensive new technologies and it's structured by digital platforms that form relational archipelagos with one, one another. Just as important, I think it's, it's, um, uh, it's crucial to emphasize that uh, the cybersphere cannot survive without thrusting roots into specialized and often territor territorialized domains. And uh, so therefore, local governments and the social actors often become indispensable partners in constituting, reconstituting the cybersphere from outside. And uh, new gateways uh, from, uh, from the live streaming, live streaming schools to the city brain, uh, originally uh, external to the cybersphere, are set up to channel uh, labor information into the web-based circulation. So, so the states and the all kinds of social actors actually are part of uh, the reconstruction work of the cybersphere. So this brings to the second point of the, about the Chinese state. I think we need to see Chinese state as a communicative actor. It's not just about it's not just about it's not just an economic actor but also uh, uh, and uh, it's not only a political actor but also a communicative actor because the Chinese state uh, participated and play a primary role in reconstituting the cybersphere from the outside. And uh, oftentimes the Chinese state is able to prioritize local perspectives. So on the one hand, the state has to uh, make sure that uh, uh, the, the politics of scales and the visibility um, uh, uh, continue to, um, uh, continues uh, because the government needs the support of the platforms. But on the, on the other hand, the state 
uh, apparently is prioritized local needs of the local community. Um, so, um, so I want, want to um, uh, end this talk with these quotes from our recent special issue. Uh, I think it's uh, when we study China as an ongoing phenomenon, it's imperative uh, to resist the temptations of reductionism and uh, line linearity on the one hand and the trapping of geopolitical rhetoric on the other hand. Uh, living histories, functioning institutions, and acting subjectivities constitute the context within which China acts, communicates, and interacts. So with that, I will end my talk, and uh, I will really uh, hope to have more interaction and uh, with the audience. Thank you. Can you, can you hear me all right? Okay. Uh, right, I want first of all to say that's one of the most exciting talks I've heard for a long time and there are a huge number of questions and thoughts which it should be raising with you about about how we think about China, uh, how we think about uh, relations between America and China, Germany and China, and and so on. Uh, I'll come to that. I'll come to that in a in a minute. I, I do. I want to say also that uh, Yu Hong has a very very sophisticated view about the role of the internet and uh, in general um, of what she calls very nicely the cybersphere indicating that we shouldn't think of the digital world as a sort of as something given out there which is just determined by by people writing programs, we should think of the digital world as being wholly integrated into the way in which we, uh, we, which we live and the influences going both ways around. Um, I think what I find most, um, most exciting about um, what you were, were saying is how the various ways in which uh, you can use the internet and digital space to move into all sorts of different areas of the Chinese economy, but above all, to move into smaller, smaller towns and, and cities and so on. So I, I was thinking about a lot of the things in the lecture is about leveling up. So we have the debate here about leveling up. Uh, and as you know, we have a, an amazingly competent, uh, brilliant, conservative government uh, with many, many ideas about how to solve the problems of leveling up. Uh, and a, lo a lot of them are giving uh, five million pounds to 
a town to build one or two more big supermarkets in the centre. This is, this, uh, the, the, the approach which you're talking about is at a really superior and interesting level. And um, I'll, uh, I, 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 I think it's something which we, we should really think about a lot about what you've been, what you've been saying. Now the second thing then comes on to uh, what should the relations be? You, you sort of, I sort of feel uh, something like, you know, these are really, really stupid kids in the playground. Uh, the United States on one hand and China, the Chinese, China on the other hand, just sort of behaving in a stupid way in relation to each other. So you could ask the question, what would happen if the American government says, uh, look, okay, it's been a little bit stupid of us to have this protectionist policy and to try and clamp up on the free flow of information between America and, and China. Why don't we go to a world where Chinese students can come and study again in the, in the United States to get, get PhDs and so on in the, in, in the sciences and bring those back to China. Why can't we let uh, Chinese companies have access if they, if they buy it to developments which are going on in, uh, in, in, the, in the West. And in exchange for that, we want you to stop talking about Taiwan because that's just an explosive issue and a very dangerous issue to play around with. And then the, we would say to the Chinese, listen, you're really, really open to do what you want as far as technology is concerned. Talk about de-risking uh, and de-linking is stupid. Uh, you just try and establish normal relations. Now, if you think through what the problems of that are, I mean, there are obvious pro problems in how you actually make sure that both sides go along with that, but I, I really work on um, I really work on the the auto industry, and a lot a lot of that is to do with um, relations between the big German companies and chi 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 Chinese industry, uh, and China has got two really really uh, really effective uh, private privately owned Chinese companies. One is BYD and the other is Geely. And they are, but they've both been very successful. They haven't got, they haven't gone up to a German type of level, but they've been very successful at what they do. There are many things which they could, there are many aspects of technology which they could well import from 
the, from the West, from, from, from German companies if they were allowed to do that. German companies, uh, who on the whole produce the sort of top level of luxury, luxury cars, they have a huge desire to be able to sell properly and without any constraints in China. And that would then solve a whole range of different, of different problems. Now, in addition to all that, there is a, we've got into a crazy situation about macroeconomics and slow growth in, in both in China and, and to a lesser extent in the, in the United States. And I think a lot of macroeconomists would say that there are actually relatively straightforward answers to this, one of which would be to develop a really effective system of social welfare in China and make sure, make sure that people have got adequate pensions because if they have <clears throat> had adequate pensions, Chinese families, particularly in the peasant families, wouldn't feel the need to spend to save massive amounts of money in order to meet their, their pensions. They would then spend more money on consumer goods and so on. We could, this is really simply to say, really if I may say so, stimulated by, by your really marvelous lecture, uh, <coughs> here, are t here are two incredible, two huge countries, and we can add in Germany as a third one, with incredible capacities. And what we've always learned in economics is free trade makes a great deal of sense. So if the, the Chinese, are, uh, Chinese can't, can't export things to the United States uh, because, uh, and because there are certainly a whole lot of things which the sophisticated things the Chinese can produce relatively cheaply, that's really saying, saying to Americans, what, why, why, are you, why are you looking a gift horse in the mouth? If the Chinese are prepared to, sell, to sell, sell things to you cheaply, why do you stop, Ameri why do you stop, stop Americans from buying them? That should be, make absolute common sense. Anyhow, we've got into this really unfortunate situation at the moment, and um, I, I hope that this talk will have made people think, think through uh, what are the things you can? What are the things you can do? And this notion of integrating across towns and cities, what the role of the state in the form of city city governments, county governments, uh, and in bigger places, municipal municipal governments, <clears throat> combined combining what they do with the private sector makes, it seems to me, a great deal, of, great deal of sense. So I thought that was very fascinating. Anyway, uh, terrific. So thank you very, both very, very much. I thought that, I also agree that that was a really wonderful and interesting presentation, both about the nature of the Chinese state, but also about the nature of digitization. So I'm very excited about what kinds of questions we're going to get from the audience. Uh, I think we have a microphone upstairs and downstairs today, so feel free to raise your hand wherever you are. I'm going to have a look behind the screen. Do we have any brave 
people. We have a brave person at the back. I can't. Is it Joel? It's Joel. Yeah. Hi. Um, hi. Thank you for the the very uh, interesting presentation. Um, I've got two questions, if I may. So, um, first question. So, how has Preston C's crackdown on the tech sector in China affected these digitalization efforts, especially in the recent years? And um, my second question is about this whole idea of, you know, using the cybersphere um, to build an inclusive society and to inform policy decisions, um, like with the city brain. So, have there been any concerns, especially from the public, about personal privacy and data protection? And how does the Chinese government go about addressing such concerns? Thank you. Okay, I see another question in the back row. It's very dark in here today, so it's kind of hard to see. Um, did you have your hand up? No, okay. Oh, there is a question right here in the middle. So we'll take a couple of questions, if that's okay. So the lady in the sort of nice white shirt, pale, pale gray shirt. Hello, thank you very much for your talk. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned about the different um, industrialization process that they're in, in Zhejiang specifically, like the CD brain and the uh, e-commerce platforms, et cetera. It all looks very, very much inward industrialization. How could China utilize these technologies to a more outward-looking industrialization and play a bigger role in the global forces that you mentioned? Okay, two great questions. So, Yu Hong, would you like to answer them? And David, if you have comments too, you're very welcome. <laughs> okay, so uh, for the first question, how uh, the President Xi is popping up the, the tech comp industry, is that the first question? Okay, I think um, the government definitely um, is uh, making good use of industrial policies. Uh, and, uh, and it's not something new. I think the industrial policy has been going on for many years, uh, especially since 2000, 2006, I remember. Because at the beginning of China's reform, China uh, outsourced its weakness to external uh, vendors. Okay, China is not very good at, uh, for example, uh, trip making. So China buy trips from from outside. So therefore, China build up these systematic reliance uh, dependence on companies like Qualcomm, Cisco, etc. But uh, after 2006. Uh, if my memory served me correct, I think there is a emphasis on indigenous innovation. Um, so um, kind of research institute and university labs are being set up um, to, to do more uh, kind of ground zero type of research. So, um, so I think uh, the, 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 the worsening um, external environment basically accelerating uh, the efforts, uh, that's for sure. So I, I would agree with um, people who are in political science who made the prediction that um, the, the delinking imposed by the United States will push the smaller player, in this case China, to seek more self-sufficiency, especially in those extremely vulnerable 
um, areas. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that China is closing up its doors, it's embracing globalization. So therefore, we see uh, Bell and Rose, we see China is trying to re-spatialize re globalization. So it's not just about opening up toward, uh, towards, uh, for example, Western capital, but also tries to seek collaboration with the global south. Um, so I think it's not about um, uh, closing up, uh, self-sufficiency in the sense of c closing up. Uh, it's a matter of um, uh, kind of building up, uh, uh, kind of uh, um, uh, fixing the weakness, we the vulnerability, and at the same time, kind of reconfiguring uh, China's opening up uh, dimensions. So find more partners, external partners, rather than just relying upon one or two countries. So I think that's so something pretty clear. But other than that, I think you have to uh, be more microscopic to, to follow what, what exactly is going on. Yeah. So the second question is about... Uh, about pri privacy, uh, I think, and sort of collection of data and whether... Oh, the privacy, use. okay. Uh, the, yeah, the privacy is a sensitive topic. Uh, I mean, it's a sensitive issue. Um, so uh, I think the city brain uh, bothers people. Like uh, during the pandemic, I think there's a, on the one hand, uh, like we know uh, in China, we use a mobile phone to, to record our health, right? So if you are healthy, uh, the, 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 your mobile phone will show green color. And then if you caught the disease, you, your, your, your phone will give you a red color. Okay, so that's how uh, this kind of remote control is uh, putting people into different categories. And uh, so the, the governance is not about governing uh, the real people. It's about governing uh, in really abstract terms. People are turned into statistics, I think. Okay, and into categories. So you are, you are being put into different categories. And if you are accidentally put in a category of of risk, then you will be, for example, put in um, uh, quarantine. Uh, so, um, so, so during that process, that experiment, kind of large scale, uh, kind of public health experiment, uh, I think uh, not only the government, but also the public realize that uh, technological solutions always have limits, okay? And uh, because some stupid mistakes are being made, uh, for example, I for example I just walk a few um, steps away from my home, then the the the, the tracking system will identi identify me like leaving the, the the city. So so because there are so many um, so many mistakes um, being made, so accidentally we find that traditional media, which has been announced as dead, uh, kind of renewed their uh, lifespan, like. Uh, traditional media, local newspaper, uh, which relied upon advertising revenue, but the advertising revenue in recent years plunged, just like in the West. And uh, what, ha what I find is that all these community newspapers actually find a new obligation. They find a very strong tie with local community because they are the ones who got the phone calls when things go wrong. So, so the city brain is a technological solution for social governance. But what, ha what is interesting uh, that I want to uh, demonstrate is that ultimately uh, local newspaper become part of these 
uh, technological solution. So instead of new technology replacing old technology, old media, actually these two types of media coexist because they have different capacities to connect with society. Okay, so I think going back to your question about privacy, um, uh, by and large, I think Chinese, popu po Chinese people are less sensitive about privacy <laughs> because of the collective way of living. So, uh, but at the same time, uh, the middle class uh, in China uh, definitely are aware of that concept. And, uh, uh, and there are uh, tons of complaints. Mm -hmm. so, so for the city brain to, um, to keep fun functioning, uh, I think uh, both the company and the government needs to uh, put its power into the cage. Mm -hmm. So it's not about kind of always unleashing uh, the, the technological freedom, but also put the technological freedom uh, under certain type, certain kind of legal uh, constraint. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I, uh, yeah, I think privacy is not a, uh, it's not a everyday vocabulary in, Ch in Chinese context, uh, just like rice, uh, I was talking to my colleagues at LSE, like he was talking about rice. But I think in China, we don't talk about rice that often. We talk about responsibilities a lot. So, uh, so when, when it comes to privacy, um, yeah, I think people don't talk about this that much, uh, but I think the awareness is rising, for sure. Yeah, because of the, uh, uh, ironically, because of the introduction of uh, architectures like the city brain. So there was also a final question that was about the kind of, your talk was a lot about inward industrialization. Uh -huh. And it was a question about the kind of outward relationships. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I actually know very little. I know that uh, Alibaba has been expanding uh, globally, uh, for example, in, into the Middle East. Uh, and also there are uh, uh, business deals in Europe, uh, European countries. And uh, in South, uh, Southeast Asia, I think Alibaba and Tencent also have uh, huge market shares. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, I think, um, I don't know, like I think they probably do localization mm -hmm. and uh, they, they probably work with local partners. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not sure. I think oftentimes uh, a project like a city brain is a state project, even in countries like Indonesia. So, um, so um, I think it's a matter of uh, uh, who are in the driver's seat. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I don't think I have sufficient information to answer that question, but I think that's very interesting to, to uh, keep following about like the digital footprint um, so, overseas. So David, do you want to add anything, or should I take more? No, 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 no. I've got okay. a few more questions. Oh. I have a lot of questions, so I'm kind of hoping that there aren't that many questions, but I also hope that there are. Okay, so we have, I see one question here, and then Max at the back. Anybody upstairs? Okay, go for it. Hi, uh, hi, Yuan, thanks, uh, thanks for that. Hello, David. Um, my question was about, you touched briefly on this idea that you think that the digital space, or the sorry, the uh, the uh, the cybersphere, is not uh, the jury's still out on whether it's kind of managed in a socialist or in a capitalist way, and and that you wouldn't like to fall one way or another. That maybe this is something, a judgment that we can make in a, in, in a decade's time or two decades' time. But it seemed a little bit from the case studies that, uh, particularly the ones where um, 
rural, uh, rural uh, vendors and peasants and uh, were being kind of taught and instructed in kind of digital infrastructure, that th these were ways of integrating them into a kind of broader capitalist system, right? Uh, in a way that, that this kind of digital infrastructure is allowing for in new and novel ways. And true, the state is kind of playing an interesting role, maybe in these JVs that you mentioned, or through state capital by giving land and other things. But it strikes me as a bit uh, on the state capitalist side, not not so much. I don't I don't really see immediately where the socialism comes in. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I understand that it's been kind of uh, the disc it's been important in the discourse the last five or seven years. This return to socialism, but where do you see it in this kind of digital space? Okay, and the question at the back from Max, who's the gentleman with the long curly blonde hair. Hello, uh, thank you for the interesting lecture. Um, I had kind of a related question in a way, I think. Uh, I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about the relationship between the Chinese government and some of those big tech companies like Alibaba, Tencent, ByteDance, that sort of thing. So about that relationship and then what the effects of that relationship are. Thank you. Okay, great. Actually, I'm gonna take one more question from James in the front. And again, if you have a question, you can put your hand up, and I'm looking out for you guys. I mean, thank, thank you both. It's really interesting. About seven or eight years ago, I was in China and had a visit to Yiwu, this place where, you know, claims to produce 70% of the world's socks, for instance, the, the biggest commodity <laughs> markets that you could find anywhere. And we had a, a talk with the, with the city government about the whole development of business in commodity, small commodity trade. And what I found very interesting was that they were really pushing and encouraging e-commerce, but they necessitated those who establish an e-commerce business to have a physical location in the city. They were promoting e-commerce in a way that did not Put a heavy tax burden on these these startups and these the, the, these commodity producers, but their thinking was that by having a physical location, they could be taxed in the future. So this is a kind of state, you know, um, I think a very responsible kind of approach to e-commerce by the by the state that could be learned even here. Uh, could be learned from. Um, but I'm just wondering, how generalized is this? Was this just something very specific in Yiwu, or is this part of the thinking of this spatializing? You know? Okay, we'll take those questions. Okay, um, I think the first question is a really good question. Um, so I want to say that, given my observation, I don't think that Chinese states wants to develop the cybersphere without the support of capital. I think the Chinese way of developing digitization and modernization relies on capital. So, um, <coughs> so does that mean, utilizing capital, does that mean is capitalism? So I think that's, for me, it's, uh, there is a kind of, there is a bridge that needs to be made. Um, so I think, people are aware that when uh, capital 
predominates, all kind of capitalistic, capitalistic symptoms will emerge, including labor exploitation. Like if you go to uh, any digital kind of so-called digital swipe shops, uh, the, the, the people work long hours and uh, they are being exported, right? Um, so, um, so all these symptoms are uh, observable in China, including labor problems, including um, the, the business kind of endless pursuit of profits. Um, but at the same time, I think it's very important to go back to the, the, the diagram that I draw, like the hybrid uh, 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 landscape, the, the, um, the hybrid system. Uh, where different type of political economies coexist. So I think what I observe is that on the micro level, on the micro policy level, the state is uh, on the one hand co-opting these giant, these giant companies, but on the other hand uh, punish these companies uh, by kind of forcing them to, uh, to, to uh, uh, kind of uh, di uh, 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 disassemble, like they don't want to grow too big, um, including Alibaba. And so, so there's uh, efforts on the regulatory level to, um, to regulate these giant players. And, um, and then on the more kind of institutional level, I think these companies, in order to survive and thrive in China, they somehow have to take up political responsibilities. So they do um, uh, kind of political um, uh, tasks for the government, including developmental projects. So I think somehow some um, some um, kind of trade-off are being made. Um, on the one hand, uh, these companies remain to follow the financial uh, the financial kind of um, signals, right? They they need to keep their balance sheets looks really nice, uh, etc. And, uh, and these companies are, do, they are uh, um, um, stock market listed. And on the other hand, um, they, they also fulfill uh, certain political um, obligations, including the, the poverty alleviation um, obligations. So, um, so I think that's, uh, yeah, so I think you're right uh, if we look, uh, if we uh, kind of interpret the, the empirical uh, evidence that I show, uh, one can also argue that it seems that the local governments are doing, uh, are, are doing the servitude for the tech companies because the local government actually is making it more convenient for these tech companies to extract value from the local community. Um, but then I, I'm thinking, what are the options? What are the alternatives? Um, so I think uh, given the fact that China is already part of this uh, web of interconnectivities, um, in order for any developmental project to be, to be, to be uh, 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 have any viability, uh, it, it seems necessary to to be to participate in the platform economy only if you kind of you um, back away from the platform economy so I think 
be part of the plant-form economy seems to be a necessity for a locality. Okay, and then um, otherwise you are isolated because the information flow determines uh, people's uh, determines people's attention, determines where they spend the money. So, um, so I, I'm debated uh, for sure. Uh, but I do see that um, as a whole, there is a, a, a very genuine effort to kind of uplifting um, kind of backward regions. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, a, and a lot of these efforts are not cap capitalist driven. They are, they are not for the sake of in, enlarging the capital. Okay, yeah. And uh, then, um, so then there was a question about state business relations between oh, okay. the Chinese state and tech companies, which I guess yeah, is I, kind I of think, similar to yeah, the yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think I answered that question. Uh, and the third question, uh, James' question, I think, um, I think. Uh, I agree that maybe there is a state logic of taxing to keep the e-commerce uh, at a place where uh, the physical markets are. And there is also a platform logic because platforms are like, they are like colonizers. They, they have to colonize on, on a place where there are a lot of resources. So I visited a remote village where uh, the trade, uh, tea trade actually is uh, Asian trade. Uh, and uh, what is interesting is that live streamers, they set up their uh, uh, live e-commerce on that traditional market because they can get um, uh, immediate access to the production, okay? Uh, so, so I don't think the platform can exist alone. Like if, if we don't cooperate, the Facebook has to go bankrupt tomorrow, like if we all uh, kind of cancel Facebook. We have to, the Facebook has to close. So I think the platform on the one hand are very powerful. It's a very powerful redistributing uh, mechanism, but at the same time, it cannot live without the cooperation of the traditional community and the population. So I think, yeah, so that's, I think there's a general pattern, yeah. Super, super interesting. Um, do we have more questions from students? Or you guys are going to let me ask some questions. Okay, well, I have a few questions that I would like to ask. Um, the first question is kind of related to the city brain. And, you know, Joel asked the question about people's privacy. And, and from your answer, I got a sense that the government might be aware with problems with this kind of mode of governance. And that got me thinking about the patchy nature of the internet, the fact that these kinds of networks might not pick up everybody's data. There might be kind of missing populations. There might be mistakes in this system. And in the UK recently, we've had this post, post office scandal, you know, where a technical system, there are all sorts of problems, and there was absolutely no transparency and acknowledgement of these kinds of mistakes in the system. So I wondered, first of all, if you could tell us how reflective is the Chinese state of the kind of patchiness of the data that they might be collecting, and how proactive and thoughtful are they about thinking about the incompleteness of the data? Because this is a state, this isn't a private company. You'd think a state would be interested in capturing the full picture of Chinese society. 
My second question is um, related to the other case study, and I've been struggling to remember the name of the researcher, but we had a, a, gender, a digital gender uh, workshop last year, and there was somebody who was presenting a similar case in China of these uh, training sessions for people, uh, I don't know what you call them, stream, st st live streaming people. Live streamers. And from that discussion, it seemed to be like a very big gap between the expectations people have and the reality of being successful. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the, the challenge of the expectation reality gap. You know, whether the Chinese state is worried about kind of projecting these very hyped up visions of what the internet can offer people versus the kind of reality mm. of how difficult it is for people to make it in that, that kind of world. Um, are there any other questions? Who says that researcher was too humble? Was it you? Was it? Well, I was at your workshop. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> how embarrassing. Okay, so my third question um, you know, you were talking about China, at various points you referred to it as a smaller player in relation to the US. But for people who work on development and are interested in other developing countries, China doesn't look like a smaller player. China looks like a very big player with a, a kind of history of state formation that's very different from other parts of the world and a, an immense kind of state capacity. And I'm wondering what people who are interested in other countries and interested in digital development should draw from this case study. You know, what are the things that you think the Chinese experience indicates more broadly about digital development in other kinds of contexts? You know, what are the lessons there? Okay. Okay. Thanks for all these very uh, thoughtful questions. Um, so, first of all, with regard to patchy data. I think um, uh, I, 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 I just talked about how uh, the city brain oftentimes uh, mistake with data, right? So the, uh, the, ter the tracking, the, the, uh, the storing, they could, uh, at every step of data pro processing, there could be mistakes. And uh, um, so, um, and sometimes the, 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 the problem, the crisis will explode when the data is too comprehensive, it's too anticipatory. Mm -hmm. So if you got historical data and you uh, combine historical data with re real-time data, and then the government start to make predictions, that's the time when uh, the public got nervous, right? Because it, it can potentially punish certain groups of people. So I remember that a couple of years ago, um, uh, Beijing municipal government, I think there is a rumor going on saying that Beijing municipal government wants to set up uh, facial recognition uh, sensors in every subway station. So that got really, really got the people anxious. And then uh, a leading state media, uh, Guangming Daily, uh, published a, a kind of a comment, commentary criticizing these kind of potential practice. So, so I think, yeah, the patchy data is one kind of problem, and then uh, kind of a, uh, a surveillance uh, type of governing is also uh, people are concerned about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't know if I answer your question directly, but I, I, I do see that even though uh, uh, the Chinese society is not as 
um, outspoken as Western societies, um, there are growing disagreements over how the digital should be used and for what purpose. But do you think that the state and civil servants are reflective of the patchiness? The patchiness means that... Of the data, the incomplete, the missing... I don't know if it's... <laughs> okay, I don't know. Imperfect quality. Imperfect quality. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's not... I, I'm not aware of okay. the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because the data... Um, the data collection is always very arbitrary, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, you select the data according to certain criteria. You, uh, there is also always a, a mental, a mental um, kind of outline uh, pre-existing, and then therefore you go outside, uh, you go to collect data. So, it's, uh, so the, the patching is, uh, I think, is determined by how you conceptualize uh, the purpose of the data. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so that's how I see it. And, uh, and the second question, the gap, I think is very interesting. So going back to the example of the live streaming school, uh, uh, there is actually a twist uh, in that story. Uh, the, the live streaming school was set up to help peasants to sell locally produced fruits. And so uh, it's a, it, it really started with a very, very altruistic uh, purpose. But then later on, they find out that it's so it doesn't make economical sense to sell um, fruits uh, online, okay? Because the fruits, uh, some fruits could be larger than others. There is no uh, only if it is uh, planted by agriculture industry, the, the fruits are always kind of vary in terms of size, in terms of the flavor. So uh, so um, it the the so it ends up that the that the live streaming school has becoming um, a school uh, meant for, uh, uh, rather than amateur uh, live streamers, but more kind of professional uh, live streamers. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so, um, so um, I think in China, um, so what has happened is that um, they, uh, they wants to build this momentum uh, in this remote area for live streaming. And uh, once uh, uh, there are several established uh, internet celebrities, they hope that these internet celebrities can make a living on their own. Uh, and uh, and uh, on their uh, kind of when they have time, when they have extra energy, they can help the peasants to sell produce. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I think, yeah, so um, uh, I think the government now, uh, indeed, is becoming pragmatic in the sense that uh, they, they first, first of all, they want to participate in the platform economy by having a local team of professional uh, live streamers. And at the same time, they want these live streamers to do extra work mm -hmm. uh, to help the peasants. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, uh, and of course, being a live streamer is a tough uh, job. <laughs> it's not at the, it's not that easy. So that's why, uh, uh, for example, the economic park, they, they, they provide a lot of support. Uh, the support of uh, give, providing supply chains. So the live streamers are not selling things that they like uh, personally. They sell things that are recommended to them uh, by some brand, brand name companies. So, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so I think it, it's tough, but, um, 
Yeah, so I think it's a, so for the local government's perspective, the, the idea is that I want to upgrade uh, the visibility of these local, these uh, location uh, in the mediated space. Mm -hmm. uh, because otherwise, I'm just a remote place, uh, mm -hmm. invisible to most of the uh, public. Okay, the last question um, was the question about what can we draw from China's experience, other developing countries that are very, you know, China is quite unique. Yeah, <laughs> China is very unique. Yeah, um, that's a very good question. I don't, <laughs> huh. uh, I think, um, Yeah, how to generalize? I don't think uh, I don't think I have, have I, I have the answer for that. Mm -hmm. I think um, yeah, a couple of years ago when I was writing my uh, my my second book, uh, I, I was being asked the same question like, how does this China Chinese experience uh, generalizable mm -hmm. to other the rest of the developing countries? And uh, at that time, I said uh, the state matters. Like when, for example, for critical scholars, oftentimes they, they criticize, they, 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 they support civil society, but they already give up on the state. Mm -hmm. So uh, at least from my experience in the United States, I think critical political economists, the radical scholars, they, they, they consider themselves as radical, so they distance themselves from the political, cent political mm -hmm. center. Yeah. And uh, as a result, the, the, the state capacity is being given away to the conservatives. Mm -hmm. So I think the state matters. So you have, to, you have to not only criticize, but also have the weaponry, uh, which is, to some extent, is the state. Yeah. So I think it's important to have a socialist state. Yeah. yeah. Even though maybe the state could deviate from its own political commitment, but it's still very important to have a... Yeah. I mean, one of the things I took from your cases is that the kind of imagined capabilities of digital technologies as networking devices, those capabilities aren't realized through technology alone, right? That, that, that the state is playing the supporting role at every turn. And I think that's similar to, to the state matters. Okay, so we have about 15 more minutes or so for extra questions. Do we have anybody with burning questions? We have one question down here and one question up there and one question here and Tim. Okay, so I guess I ask everybody to make their questions quite uh, concise so we can fit all four. Actually, it's not going to be a question, more like a, so like a short comments. On Could you talk a little bit more? Into yeah, uh, actually, it's not going to be a question. It's more like a short comments on so like the previous question on this data patching issue and also what's the implication of Chinese experience. I, I can probably draw a little bit. Um, so what what China did on this so like this poverty reduction? How do you could talk with how do you actually yeah. use this so like uh, you know the the data? To uh, you know, pinpoint the you know the households of this kind of the poor households which I think needs this assistance. So uh, the, the the strategy they use is actually they just go to each of those you know households of this you know poor village to find out you know what they have and actually to identify them whether they are uh, you know be uh, you know 
uh, meet the required criteria to receive the subsidy or you know um, assistance. Uh, but obviously, there are lots of like misinformation. You know, if you just ask people about what what things you have, so they actually come up with this, uh, different strategies. You know, uh, for example, they could ask their neighbors. So like, okay, do you know who is the poorest you know household in your whole village? So using those kind of uh, you know techniques or you know strategies to try to you know. Uh, uh, improve the quality of the data. So this is not necessarily kind of like only come from those digital uh, uh, techniques, but they do rely on those kind of like, uh, you know, these digital uh, techniques to uh, help them to uh, improve the data quality. So I think this is kind of like, uh, you know, maybe related to the question raised about, you know, how they actually dealing with this data patching or data in uh, perfectness, uh, imperf imperfection uh, question. But this actually also, another one is actually on this sort of like implication. I think it's a, again, using the same examples, I think it's about the, how you can target in this kind of like a poor family, you know, which is sort of like very unique Chinese approach. But I heard actually from one of my colleagues who actually doing this, uh, pub, you know, sharing this experience to, you know, other, uh, Central Asia countries, with Uzbekistan, for example, I think they are also approaching to try to using this kind of like a, a, you know, how to identify, you know, uh, the households, the poor households, then just providing this kind of like a necessary support. So those are some, you know, anecdotal uh, examples I'm just going to want to share. So probably going to just uh, related to this uh, questions. Okay, thank you very much. So let's have the question upstairs and then Tin in the front here, Matt. At the very front, Tim, and then Vladimir. Thank you. I would like to ask such a question in Mandarin first, then translate it into English. Okay. 洪博士你好,我想请问您就是中国在发展智慧城市和数字村庄项目方面的举措,对中国社会经济差异的影响,可以理解为贫富差距。然后第二个问题的话,刚才主持人已经问了,就是如何在全球南方的其他发展中国家
you know, I, I very like, I very much like the fact that you're using this kind of infrastructural turn and like looking at the materiality of the technology. I myself try to to use this a bit in my own PhD. I was just wondering if you could reflect a bit on the advantages and limits of the theoretical framework uh, and what you found in, in your own uh, research. Thank you. Okay, we have a final question um, from Vladimir, who's in a very nice suit today. Thank you. Um, my question also relates to the Economist front page. Um, the idea of a China sketch, can it be applied to the way Western cybersphere works today? Because we see a lot of censorship, we, we see the idea that misinformation is the biggest threat expressed at Davos World Economic Forum. We see Biden's unconstitutional bullying of um, Facebook and other social media into um, censoring some information. So probably instead of having a China sketch at the front page, we should have I know the United States cage or European cage, but probably we will not see that. So, to what extent the role of the state in censoring, controlling the cybersphere extends to to the West? Okay, you have about five minutes. <laughs> okay, so I think the first question. I think I already answered that about the um, uh, developmental gap, right? So, how does developmental gap? Uh, a fact. Um, well, well, China, of course, is a big country. We can talk about uh, many Chinas, right? <laughs> Depends on where you are located. So Zhejiang, of course, is a very um, uh, is a front runner in terms of di digitization. But if you go to other places, uh, maybe the local government doesn't have as as much bargaining power as Zhejiang local government has with regard to Alibaba platform. So that's my hypothesis. I'm not 100% sure about how to think about kind of uh, variations within China. But I'm sure if you go to Henan or like Hebei, like probably the situation, the low government business relationship will be different. And the public's uh, awareness is different. Yeah. So that's kind of my, uh, my, uh, my answer. The second uh, question is about materiality. How the framework? Um, well, because I'm from communication, so I think materiality is important to justify my uh, approach. Uh, most of the people in journalism and communication studies, they study um, textual representation. So they study culture. They study cultural representation. And they, uh, at the American training, like Amer the, the, the mainstream American communication research focus on media and uh, communication effect. So how can I package a story to persuade people? That's the, the dominant concern. Um, yeah, so I think uh, having the material turn of communication research is really important uh, for me. Um, and uh, in terms of the limitations of this framework, um, well, I think right now I'm struggling how to internationalize my research because I have focused a lot on China internally. Uh, explaining China, making sense of China, but how to follow the digital footprints. And uh, um, yeah, so I think how, how, for example, how Chinese political economy participated in the digital formation in Africa, in Latin America, that's the, uh, I think that your workshop will, <laughs> will be a very good <laughs> launch pad <laughs> for a new type of research. Uh, yeah, okay, 
So the last the last question I, was like, is the U.S. also in a cage? I I, I don't know if I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> I, yeah, I think uh, one of my colleagues did a very interesting empirical work. He's, she's uh, uh, studied people's behaviors. Like her question is, if without the Great Firewall, will Chinese people visit a website outside of China? Mm -hmm. So he find out that even without the firewall, people will still visit the, the Chinese language website because of the linguistic limitation. So I think, uh, I think something is, uh, going on in the United States. I think um, w when people visit, uh, use the internet, it has a lot to do with uh, their cult, like linguistic capacity, their, their, their social kind of orientation. Like if you uh, have an uh, ancestor coming from the Central Europe, I think it's more likely to visit, uh, to, to pay attention to information from that part of the world. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that the, the internet opens up a window to everything. I think still uh, your, your, your cognitive framework uh, influences how you use the internet. Yeah. Yeah. There was recently a piece in the New York Times about how the top 10 Chinese films in the last few years no longer features American movies. Um, and they're dropping out of the kind of market. So uh, let's just thank Professor Yu Hong and David Soskis for this very stimulating talk. I also want to draw your attention that the Cutting Edge Lecture Series does not finish today. Uh, we have a great talk next week on debt and the climate change precipice, how can the global majority cope?